I'm excited to uh, be continuing our series. Um, we're coming down the last couple of weeks of the Time to Grow series, and we've been talking about spiritual growth, growing individually in our vertical relationship with God, growing in our horizontal relationship uh, with the world around us as we seek to reach out on His behalf to impact this world for Christ, and growing in the five biblical purposes of discipleship, evangelism, fellowship, worship, which we'll be talking about today, and ministry, which we'll be talking about next week. I want to welcome our Facebook uh, watchers. We have 20, 30 people a Sunday that log in and worship with us, and they get the whole service, and they tune in for the worship and the message, and so we say hello to them. And uh, if you ever miss a service, know that that's available. If you can tune in live, awesome. If you need to catch up the week later, you can go to our Facebook page, click on videos, and find the, the archived video of the service. You can also listen to our podcast online. I mentioned that because I've said a couple of times, this is a pretty important series. We're sort of clarifying and, and recasting our vision to reach people for Christ, give them a place to belong, help them grow in their faith as we are and increasingly become a family of families. That's really important to us here, and that's why we're starting the year by refreshing all that, clarifying all that, make sure that that's front and center in our minds, in our lives, and in our relationships with God and with each other. So as I mentioned, we started with discipleship. Just to recap, discipleship is the one thing that changes everything. Jesus really wants to reformat our hard drive. He really wants to transform our hearts from what they were before we met him to be just like he would be if he were you. If he were me, what would he do in various situations, in the places that you work, in the places that you go, in the places that you live, in the relationships you have? He wants to transform your heart to be more like his. Then we talked about uh, evangelism and the idea that found people find people, that if you know what you've been saved from and you know what you've been saved to, you cannot help but share that good news with other people, that found people find people. Last week, we transitioned into the subject of fellowship, and this idea that we grow faster through fellowship, and we grow further. We, we grow beyond where we can get on our own when we surround ourselves with other believers, and when we get in the same boat with each other, two fellows in the same ship, we can accomplish far, far more than we can ever accomplish on our own. And we grow and go faster too, that, that when we're surrounded with like-minded people and we can all be of one accord and have one heart and one mind, we can accomplish far more together than we could ever accomplish on our own. So our bottom line last week was we really are better together. We really are better together. And I was so thrilled last uh, Sunday after service, we had our first disciple maker training. We've been talking about this. We've got the journals. The journals are kind of for your personal spiritual practices, spending time in God's Word. They also are the, the format or the basis of a discipleship group experience. And we had nine people that spent their Sunday afternoon learning how to facilitate a discipleship group, and it was a wonderful, wonderful time of sharing together and learning how they could be disciple makers right here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, that you don't have to get on a plane and go to Zambia. If God calls you to do that, do it, but we can all be engaged in discipleship right here, right now. Then what was really cool is, is several, 
other people had signed up for the Disciple Maker training on the 9th, and our awesome children's pastor saw that and said, oh, those people have kids. I should plan to stick around. She was in the one last Sunday, so she's going to stick around for the one next Sunday to take care of any kids that, that you have. So if you're only hang up for not going to the Disciple Maker training was that you didn't have a, a child care option. We now have a child care option for the one on the 9th. So you get lunch, and you get child care, and you get to be trained how to make disciples. It's a pretty good deal. And uh, if, if you're thinking about it, praying about it, I hope that you'll sign up, RSVP, so we make sure we have enough food and enough books and everything else. Um, but we will be doing that next, next Sunday. And I've been praying for 20 people to go through that training. And we're close. We've got about 16 that have signed up so far. So I need four more. So if that's what you need, if you're a goal-oriented uh, person and that's what you need to nudge you over, um, I would encourage you to, to make that a priority. Today we're going to be talking about this idea that it is time to grow stronger through worship. To grow stronger through worship. Now you might be thinking, well, stronger, that's an interesting thing to say. I thought we were, you know, we would grow more joyful through worship, or we would grow happier through worship, or maybe we would grow more spiritual through worship. And I think all of those are the case, but when you culminate all of that into one thing, I believe God's desire is that we would grow stronger in the strength that we need to follow Him, the strength that we need to trust and obey is fed through worship. That as we worship him, and we'll talk about worship because you might be thinking, Master Mark, I can't sing all day. I'll lose my job because I, I am not a good singer, right? I would have that problem too. I am not a worship leader. <laughs> I love to worship, and I would be fine to sing all day. But we're going to talk about how it goes way beyond singing. But we do grow more happy, and we do grow more joyful, and we... we we talk about the joy unspeakable and full of glory. Good job with that. I couldn't clap. I, I know some of you were struggling with the clap. It was a pretty fast-paced tune, but we had a good time singing about the joy unspeakable of following God and then to reflect on what joy is available to us as we follow him, as we grow stronger through worship. So let's first define worship so we're sure we're all on the same page and we're not having some misconceptions of what worship is and what worship entails. First and foremost, worship is giving worth or value to something or someone. That if you were to worship someone, worship something, you assign worth or value to that thing. And so there are degrees. And so uh, you could have some things that you worship just a little bit because you assign just a little worth and value to them. Other things you worship more, and hopefully God is the supreme place, and you have assigned more worth and more value to Him than to anything else. So we give worth or value to someone or something. In old times, there was the paying of tribute, and so you might pay tribute, a collection of taxes or those types of things. You would pay tribute to a foreign king. You would assign worth or value to not having him kill you, so you would pay tribute to them. So that's kind of wrapped up in this idea of worship. Uh, there's the idea of giving time, attention, and focus to something. That's sort of inherent in a, assigning worth to something. And, and all of this comes back to this idea of worth, of value, to the point that you could say worship is really worthship. It's placing worth on someone or something. So just like last week, we talked about fellowship is way more than cookies and coffee and lunch after church. Worship is way more than singing or reading psalms 
or hymns versus choruses, or all the other things that kind of get wrapped up into worship as we usually think of it. In fact, you may have walked in and thought, okay, we'll have a period of worship where we'll sing together, and then we'll have the sermon as if the sermon is different than worship, but if we're still assigning value to God, to His words, to His instructions, to our lives, then we're still worshiping right now. And often we'll say at the end of a service as we continue to worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings. It's all worship when we assign worth and value to God. So we're going to start in Acts 2 as we have before and look at where this worship shows up in the early church as the church is just getting started at the end of Acts chapter 2 and is experiencing a season of explosive growth. Uh, We see some verses primarily 45, 46, 47, that really hit the nail on the head as far as worship is concerned. So we'll read those together and, uh, and see how they applied worth to someone or something or did something as followers of Christ because they decided it was worth it to do that. So verse 45, selling all their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need because it was worth it. To them, It was worth it for the fellowship, for the community to be well supplied, that they would sell what they had in order that someone else might have what they need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and this was at some great risk to themselves, a progressively greater risk as the time moved on, and yet they continued to meet because it was worth it. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God because it was worth it. It was worth it to go to the extra trouble to meet together, to break bread together. All because, if you look back at verse 42, because they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, because it was worth it. They made a conscious choice to devote themselves to these things because they said it's worth it. They had seen the resurrected Savior. They had seen Him on the cross. They had seen Him in the flesh after He had gone down into the tomb, down into the grave, come back to life. And they said, this is worth it. This is worth any cost. This is worth any peril. This is worth any danger for us to follow Him and to do what He said and to become the kind of people who carry His message forward. And so that intersects with us because, as I mentioned a moment ago, we have a mission here at Linwood to reach people for Christ. And so we make sacrifices to do that, to reach people for Christ, because it's worth it. It's worth it to reach people for Christ. We give them a place to belong. We're intentionally focused on, on hospitality and on people coming through and ha- these doors and having a good first experience. And the regular family of families here experiencing fellowship together and having a place that they call home, that they are seen, and that they are recognized. There's value in that. And so we say that's worth it. We're focused on that because it's worth it. And we help people grow in their faith from the Kids Way hallway to the LSM to the Sunday school classes and the Sunday morning teachings. We, we are focused on helping people grow in their faith because it's worth it. Because it's worth it as we become a family of families. We give and we serve sacrificially. And many of you give sacrificially and you serve sacrificially on Sunday mornings and throughout the week and in the community because you decided that it's worth it. It's worth it to set aside that time. It's worth it to put those dollars into the kingdom. 
And John and Abby were just on stage here a minute ago, and they decided at one point to go to Zambia for a short-term mission experience because it was worth it to spend those resources and that time doing that. And then they made a decision that it was worth it to stay there long-term and to relocate their family there and to make all the sacrifices that go into that because it was worth it. Are we, are we starting to get a picture for what worship really looks like? It's, it's assigning the worth and the value. And so how does that translate into your life? What are the sacrifices that you have made? Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. And it's not a matter of elevating one over the other. It's, it's a matter of introspection. Where, where does the rubber meet the road on this for you? Because I believe that we grow stronger and our faith grows stronger and our church grows stronger when we worship God. When we put him first and we say, Jesus, you are worth my first and my best. We grow stronger when we say to him, you are worth my first and my best. We grow stronger individually when we make that declaration. And we grow stronger corporately when we make that designation, when we make that decision. And so I want to focus today on the first and the best. That when we say to Jesus, you are worth my first and my best. And my best. I want, to, I want to focus on first and best. And I want to think about why that matters to God. Why does it matter to God that we would give him our first and our best? And one passage that came to mind is in Malachi chapter 1. And don't worry, I'm not going to preach a whole message from Malachi. Women always grab their purses when you branch in Malachi in church. Or, you know, guys, check their wallet. I got my wallet. Okay, we're good. Don't worry. We're not going there. But in Malachi chapter 1 is probably the strongest language to why it matters so much to God that we bring him our first and our best. Malachi 1.10, you don't necessarily need to turn there. There's a haunting passage where God says, Oh, that somebody would shut the doors to my temple so that nobody else can bring me a lame sacrifice. You see, it was very important to God that we bring our first and our best to him. And over time, the people of Israel had gotten pretty good at bringing the lame and the blind animals as part of their sacrifices to God. That They brought the ones that had little or no value to them personally and brought that. And so the modern equivalent is kind of tipping God with a 20 in the offering plate instead of practicing solid biblical stewardship. Or when we say, I'm just going to tithe my time. I don't have to give because I serve, or those types of things. When we find one thing and bring that in place of what God has asked for, that's not bringing our first and our best. Anytime we do this so that we don't have to do that, we're saying that values is valued higher than what God has asked for. Does that make sense? And so when we talk about bringing leftovers or bringing scraps, that's essentially what what God is saying, don't do it. I wish I could get somebody to bolt the door shut so that nobody else will bring me their lame and their blind animals. And the principle applies. Anytime we bring him something other than our first and our best, we're falling short and, and we're not worshiping him as he prescribed. If you look at Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verse 6, it'll be on the screen behind me. But this is Jesus talking here as, as he's addressing the crowds and this issue of clean and unclean comes up. But he quotes Isaiah in a really powerful way and these brings this into the red letters essentially uh, in, in Scripture. Jesus replies to the crowd, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites as it is written. 
The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules made by men. And those are haunting words to hear coming from our Savior's mouth if they apply to us. If we're bringing God anything less than our first and our best, then, then he's speaking to us. And he's saying that we are worshiping him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. And perhaps our hearts are getting closer to him. I believe that there are, that there are matters of degree in this. But I love the ESV study Bible comment on this verse, on this time when Jesus refers back to Isaiah, or to Isaiah 29. And, and they say, outwardly proper worship actually offends God if it's a way of evading him at a deeper level. Outwardly proper worship offends God if it's a way of evading him at a deeper level. When we're kind of playing a little shell game with God to keep the things that we really value most in our camp instead of bringing our first and our best to God. And then in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, if you want to turn to Matthew 6, these won't be on the screen. Uh, Matthew 6 There are several verses that really speak to this from the Savior's mouth in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which we believe was the central teaching of his ministry. When he went and would teach the people for days, he was teaching them on the subjects that we have contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in verse 21, as plainly and bluntly as as possible, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, the things that you value most, that you've assigned the most worth to, wherever that is, that's where your heart's going to be. And I think that's one of the reasons that God has instructed us to give of our time and our talents and our treasures, to give of our money, because he knows that, that when we put our money in the church, in the kingdom, our heart will follow it. You know, I, I started uh, giving money to a Central Wyoming rescue mission when we lived in Casper, and I didn't care a whole lot about the rescue mission, but I knew that they were doing good work. And as I gave more, and as we developed that relationship, my heart started to warm towards that ministry. And next thing you know, we're on the board, and then I'm on the you know, president of the board, and I'm on the foundation, all those different things, because my heart followed. And I believe our hearts follow where our money is. And if all of our money is wrapped up in possessions and in homes and in those types of things, then that's where our heart is going to reside. Jesus is saying this, not me. Um, and he goes on a few verses later saying, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. You'll either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, lest we have any qualms about what he is speaking of when he talks about two masters. That God is first or the pursuit of more money is first in our lives. That we can't serve both at the same time. And finally, at the end of that passage in verse 33 of chapter 6, he says, Seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. You'll have enough to eat. You'll have enough food. You'll have enough clothing. You'll have enough for eternity. Not just in the here and now, but for eternity. You will have what you need when you seek first, give our first and our best to God and to his kingdom. So to bring this all together real quickly, it's not just a head issue, it's a heart issue. He said, where your money is, your heart will be also. It's a mastery and a lordship issue. We cannot serve two masters. We can only have one master, one lord. Is it Jesus Christ or is it me calling the shots? 
of my life. And if worship equals worth and value and way more than songs, then it's safe to say that the degree to which our lives worship God by putting Him first and giving Him our best is the degree to which we value Christ. We shouldn't fool ourselves. We have an enemy who would love to convince us otherwise. We have an enemy that would love to convince us that, you know, Jesus can be first among equals or Jesus can be in the top ten and we'll be fine. But he has said, you should worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a big deal. And when he talks about it as a heart issue, and he talks about it as a lordship issue, and he says definitively, seek first the kingdom of God, we seek first the kingdom of God because we realize he's worth it. He's worth the top spot. He's worth the highest value in our lives. And so we put him first, and we make a commitment to give our first and our best because he's worth it. And I would spend the rest of our time on this, what you would call the principle of the first fruits, kind of zeroing on on this idea of the first and the best. Because from the very beginning, all the way back to Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, have you ever wondered why, if you know this story, uh, both Cain and Abel, they were brothers, they were sons of Adam and Eve, and they were instructed to bring an offering. And for one reason or another, God accepted... Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. And some, perhaps some of you have wondered, I wonder why. And the text actually gives us a reason. Because we're told that Cain brought an offering of some. He brought an offering of some of the fruit of his fields. But Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks. It's very clear in the text that Cain brought some but Abel brought the firstborn of his flocks. Commentators think that they both had both and that Cain's offering did not put God first, but Abel's did. And then this gets clarified as the law comes to the people of Israel through Exodus chapter 13. And so you can turn there. We're going to spend the rest of our time uh, looking at a couple of verses in there. But in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Lord says to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. Now that word consecrate means literally to to dedicate to the Lord, to turn over to the Lord. So you say, yes, that that firstborn of the flock was born to me, But I'm giving it to you, God. I'm giving it to the Lord. And then he prescribes the ways that you bring it in to the temple as part of worship. And there would be food in the temple for those who were working in the temple. The Levites were not given a land inheritance. So the rest of Israel brought offerings in order for them to be able to eat and so on and so forth. But the firstborn was to be consecrated or set apart to God. And this today applies to our own time, talents, and treasures. Thank God we do not bring animals in every Sunday and slaughter them over here and burn them on the altar over there. I don't think that would be good for church attendance in the 21st century. I think it would be 
less than appealing to most people. The barbecue following the service, maybe, maybe not. But the process of bringing animals in and sacrificing them, we've moved beyond that. The economy has diversified quite a bit from the agricultural economy. But the principle remains the same. And, and here's why first fruits matters so much. Because giving the first and the best requires faith and invites a blessing. Giving the first and the best requires faith and invites a blessing. If I'm a brand new farmer and I get my first offspring and I've got to bring in the first and the best, that requires a lot more faith than bringing in the ninth or the tenth because I'm not sure if I'm going to get more. And if I bring in the best, well, if you know anything about animal husbandry and raising herds, you want your best and your strongest to be the ones that are reproducing to bring more and more best and strongest. And if I take the best and the first to God, that requires way more faith than the last couple or the least. In fact, giving the lame and the last requires no faith. And God tells us it invites a curse. And so we can give our first and our best and receive a blessing, or we can give our last and our lame and receive a curse. In the Old Testament sense of giving and faith and receiving. So I want to apply this principle of first fruits to these three areas, time, talent, and treasure. I don't know who first came up with that little bit of alliteration. I love alliteration. I've heard Robert Morris speak on this subject a number of times and probably have some of his ideas involved in here, but I'm going to reverse the order because I know you all want to talk about treasure first Um, (laughs) and because it'll help us stay engaged a little bit more and we'll see how this flows out. But when we talk about treasure, when we talk about money, we talk about physical resources. Jesus has said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But the, the, the idea in Scripture about bringing our first and our best when it applies to treasure is the concept of tithing. The Old Testament standard of tithing that Jesus uh, affirms several times during his ministry, Paul actually expands. He says, we're not talking about just tithing anymore. We're talking about giving generously over and above a tithe. And so uh, there's continuity of the concept from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But it's really interesting to look at the language When God talks about tithing, he always uses the word bring. Bring the tithe, one-tenth, ten percent. He wanted to make the math easy. He didn't want to tell you to bring a seventh or a twelfth because then you'd have to get your calculator out. But if it's a tenth, you just move the decimal. If the deposit from your paycheck is $2,500, you just move the decimal, and it's really easy to figure out your tithe. You do 50. If you have 10 sheep, you bring a tithe. If you have 10 bushels of grain, you bring one, you bring a tithe. You made it really, really simple because he knows we don't like math. But he says, bring the tithe. He doesn't say give the tithe. He says, bring it. You can't give it. You either bring it or you steal it. Those are the only two options because it's all his. It all belongs to God in the first place. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the people and everyone in it, we all, it all belongs to God. So you don't give it like it belongs to you. You bring it because it belongs to him, and he's asked you to bring it back. In fact, it's a fun game. I could invite Ryan up here to join me, and we could play a little game where I give him a dollar, and he gives me a dime. And then I give him another dollar, and he gives me another dime. How, many, how long would you like to play that game? 
Just once or twice, or would you do it all day? All day, all year, all year. Because that's the principle of tithing. He gives us a dollar, and he asks us to bring a dime back. And then he gives us another dollar and another dime back. That's the principle of first fruits that we would give our first and our best. And he made it equitable to a degree. 10% is 10%, whether you have a little or you have a lot. Now, I would say, and Paul would probably echo this, that the opportunities for giving are not equitable. If you have a lot, then you can give more. And that your standard of giving should grow as your standard of living grows. That the person who makes $40,000 a year and brings 4000 in versus the person that makes $100,000 a year and gives 10000 this one has 36000 to live on. This one has 90000 to live on, which maybe could be a little more generous in, in additional ties and offerings and going above and beyond. That's a side issue. The real important thing is, is that it's our first and it's our best. That as soon as the deposit goes in, the tithe goes out. Whether you get paid weekly or monthly or every two weeks, it's the first check you write. I think there's a spiritual component to that. We set up our automated giving. We automate the important things in our life so that I don't mess them up. So we automated our house payment. We automated our car payments when we had them. We automate our giving. I get a deposit on Friday, and the first thing that comes out of that deposit is our tithe money so that it doesn't get spent on other things, so that it doesn't evaporate and that we don't end up at the end of the month without having done that. And some of you might be thinking, well, the church must really need their money. That's why he's talking about tithing. That's why he went from worship of being about singing to worship being about giving. No, I I actually didn't. Um, And I'm not going to say the church doesn't need your money, but you need to give it far more than the church will ever need to receive it. Case in point, we started tithing Many years ago, when we were attending a church with a $200,000 budget surplus, the church did not need our money. And that had been a hang-up for me. And I remember watching a Bible study with Rick Warren, and he looked right into the camera, and he said, I dare you to tithe. And he was talking about Malachi 3, when God says, test me in this, and see if I will not throw open the doors of heaven and rain down upon you a blessing that you can't even contain. And he went a step further, and in fact, and he said, you know, Saddleback's blessed, so we're going to go ahead and say, if you can't pay your bills after 90 days of tithing, send them to me, I'll pay them for you. I was like, you got a deal. So we started tithing. First month was great. I was in commission sales. Second month was absolutely terrible. Some of the commissions that I'd earned the previous month, the policies lapsed, and now I had to work a whole month just to get back to zero. And so we had a month with zero income. And I'm like, thanks a lot started tithing. And then we started watching money come in. We started watching items that, that we had been trying to sell get sold and money come in. We got a refund from a doctor's office where they had been audited and found out that we'd overpaid. And we got a, a utility deposit return so we didn't have to pay our electric bill for a couple of months. And we added it all up and it was, it was like within five or ten dollars of what we absolutely had to have to make it through that month. And we said, okay, God, you win. We will tithe forever. This is a non-issue for us. We will do it. And, and we have ever since then. And so I want to encourage you to, to trust God in this area if you haven't, if you're not already, to trust God in this area and watch him, watch him rise to meet you. Not 
not health, wealth, and prosperity, sow a thousand and he'll send you ten thousand, or start tithing today and then go buy a lottery ticket and you'll win. It's not that kind of nonsense. It's putting God first and saying, you're worth my first and my best. Then I want to move on to talents. So we've talked about treasures. This is probably one of the easiest ones for us to latch onto and to know that we are giving him our first and our best. Talents are next. Talents are your skills and your abilities and the realization that God gave you those two. And ultimately, they belong to him. And when we give him our first and our best and we give him our spiritual service and our spiritual gifts and we use the gifts that he has given us and the abilities that he has given us not only for ourselves but for others, then we are worshiping him with our talents, with the talents that he has given us. And I'm not going to belabor this point today because we're talking about ministry next week, but I will tell you this, they're not just for you. They're not just for your benefit. They're for the community. They're for the fellowship. Therefore, everyone, they've been entrusted to you. What are you going to do with the gifts and abilities and the talents that you have, and how could they be engaged in building the kingdom through your local church? Lastly is time, and you could say that time is the one of the greatest value because time is the, is the one resource that we can't go earn more of. You can't work really, really hard and end up with 25-hour days or 380 days in a year and you have additional time to use. We're all on a level playing field when it comes to our time. So what does it look like to give God our first and our best in response to time? I believe that it is very powerful when we give God our first and or our best in regards to time each day. And I say first and or best on this one because some of y'all are zombies until 9 o'clock in the morning. And getting up 15 minutes earlier or an hour earlier to have your quiet time with God is not going to be productive. (laughs) You're going to be falling asleep. And so maybe the best time that you could give to God would be at the end of the day. Me, I'm on a downward slope from about 7 p.m. on. And so I give God those first minutes of my day because those are the best minutes of my day. If your best minutes of day are on your lunch hour or at the end of the day, give God your best. When you're the most attentive, when you're the most focused and you're able to receive the most from his word and spend that time with him as an offering, as a way of worshiping him. I'd like you to think about Sunday as the first day of your week. Maybe you've always thought of Sunday as the last day of the week, but what if Sunday was the first day of your week and you come and you bring God your worship and your praise and you spend time serving him and in fellowship with one another and in ministry because he's worth your first and your best. And you make that a priority and you say we're going to be there. We're not just going to come when we don't have anything better to do. We're going to make that a priority, spend time in worship, spend time in service as a priority, as a way to bring God our first and our best. And to kind of bring this all full circle, if you skip down a few verses to verse 13 through 15, I want to read this to you because it brings it all home for us. In Exodus 13, verses 13 through 15, we read these words. This is Moses speaking on behalf of God. He says, Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, why did pastor go there? This doesn't make any sense. What, what are we talking about with redeeming? Well, if there was an animal that was unclean, that didn't have any value in the temple, then it was to be redeemed with something that did have value. Okay? So donkeys had no value in the temple. So he uses that as an example, and he says, redeem the donkey. Don't bring me the donkey. I don't want the donkey. It has no value 
in my temple. Instead, bring a lamb. Bring a lamb in place of the donkey. Redeem it. You consecrate, set aside for God every clean animal and the firstborn of all your sons. And whatever is unclean, you redeem it. But he also gives us an option to redeem our sons, to redeem our firstborn sons, because he knows that, that they were needed on the family system. They were needed in the community, and the Levites were to take care of the temple and the worship. So we didn't need to bring all these firstborn sons into the temple. Does that make sense? So he says, redeem the unclean animals and redeem your sons. Redeem your sons. And what do you redeem the sons with? A lamb. Are you starting to make some connections here at how we were redeemed by God through his firstborn son? He gave his only begotten son that we would be redeemed. And Moses makes it even clearer. This was the generation that came out of Egypt. And he says, in the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? This being, what does it mean that you go and slaughter a lamb in place of your firstborn son? What does that mean? Why do we do that? You will say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in Egypt, both man and animal. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. It's, it's a powerful, powerful testimony to putting God first and giving him our best that we always bring the first and we redeem the first. And so God, in his grace, in his mercy, in his unspeakable love for us, redeemed us with his own firstborn son. And that is why we can say without any, without any confusion, without any asterisk, without any caveats or anything Aside from this truth that Jesus is worth our first and our best. Jesus is worth our first and our best. If you have been redeemed by the blood of that lamb, he is worth your first and he is worth your best. That's our bottom line today. That Jesus was the sacrificial lamb that redeemed each and every one of us and Jesus is worth our first and our best. And the generational impact applies today as well. That you may have a point in time where your kids ask you, why don't we go to Disneyland? Why don't we ever take a big vacation like some of my friends take? And you can say, well, we give our first and our best to God. And we think that that's worth it. And I'm not saying if you go to Disneyland, that's fine. That's not the point. It's fine, especially if you're already tithing. Okay, I will give you that caveat. But there's a generational impact and the ability to say to your children, we don't have some of these things because we have Jesus. We have redemption. We have eternity with God, and we have put him first and decided to give him our first and our best. Combined age of our cars is 26 years old, and we got 360,000 miles on them because Jesus is worth it. We look at our tithing statement, and we say, gosh, we could both be driving new cars. But we have decided that we would rather drive old cars with a lot of miles and give Jesus our first and our best instead of giving that to a car dealership. And the, the, the applications are many. 
And it moves beyond just treasure to our time that, that we could sleep in a little bit more often, but we've decided to give God our first and our best as it relates to our time, as it relates to our talent. We serve, we give. We could have an evening at home, but instead we choose to go and serve. And this is what the people of God do when they put God first and decide that I'm going to give God my first and my best. And I look out over the crowd and I see all kinds of people and all kinds of ways that you have chosen to do this. That you have chosen to put God first, and you have made sacrifices, and you have made sacrifices so that he will be first in your life, and so that his kingdom will go forth from this place, and you give, and you serve. And so the question is for each and every one of us, what's the next step? What's the next step? Not because you have to, but because it's worth it. I believe every person in this room has a next step. And I want you to pray about what that might be, and I want you to take it. Not because you have to. It's not about guilt or shame, but because he's worth it. Because he's worth it. We're going to transition into a time of communion, a time of coming and receiving the body and the blood of Christ represented by a piece of bread and a little cup of juice. And as we do, I hope that, that this is a profound experience for you. We see we do communion on the first Sunday of the month. We do it on the first Sunday of the month, each month. And that can get repetitive. But I would imagine that after a message like this, if you've been listening and the Spirit has been speaking to you, that, that maybe there's an application point for you. And you say, I have a step to take. I want to take my next step. And so that's what I want this time of communion to be. If, if you're a regular attender here, then you've heard this spiel before, but we have people who have never partaken in communion before, and they need to know that we serve an open communion at Linwood. That means you don't have to be a member. You don't have to have your name on some list in the office in order to partake of the Lord's Supper with us. You're welcome at the table as long as you follow Christ's instructions. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. If you can partake of the body and blood of Christ in remembrance of him, of his sacrifice, of the sacrificial lamb of God coming to take away the sin of the world, then you're welcome to partake with us. If you have children and you're confident that they have been instructed and they understand what they're doing, then they are welcome as well. And so in a moment, we'd ask these two sections here to come down to the center, go around to the outside. These far two sections kind of come down that outside aisle, receive the elements, and go back the outside. Um, same thing over here. And then when you've received the elements, please hold them until everybody has, has received. I'll come back up in a moment and, and lead us in the partaking of those. But for now, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. So thankful for your goodness. So thankful for your grace. So thankful for your son, Jesus, who we turn our attention to now, who was that perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God who came to redeem us, that we would not need to be separated from you for eternity. Lord, it occurs to me that there may be some today who do not know you as Lord and Savior and have not heard this connection before have not heard the good news, have not experienced your presence. So I pray, if that describes anyone, that they would confess their need of a Savior to you and invite you into their heart to be their Lord and their Savior. 
and that today, February 2nd, 2020, could be the day of salvation, the day that they partake of the body and blood of Christ in communion as a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us as we come that your spirit would would intercede with our own spirit, that we would confess anything that stands between us and you, that we would commit to anything that you have laid upon our hearts, that we would be a people who respond in faith to your word. And that in these next few moments, we would boldly take the next step in worshiping you with our first and our best because you are worth it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.